Ladies and gentlemen, what's going on? Here we are. It's Offside Hockey Talk back in your ears. And tonight we got a big one for you. It is Dave Jackson, former NHL referee, now the rules analyst, interpreter, everything you need to know when a game is going on. He's on the ESPN broadcast breaking it down. You've probably seen him throughout the playoffs. There's a few key plays that people wanted to know about. Uh, Dave, how's the night treating you tonight? Everything's doing great. You know, just a bit of time off from hockey. It's uh, <laughs> It seemed like uh, with ESPN, I was on, you know, three, four times a week since the All-Star break and every second night in the playoffs. So it's nice to have a bit of time off. Oh, probably so, probably so. And my man right beside me, if you know who it is, it's Dylan Fournier, Mr. D4 over on TikTok. Uh, how's your night taking out, my friend? It's great. Love, uh, love to have the opportunity to talk to Dave here. So uh, I'm excited to get the show on the road. Well, let's get rolling. Well, so everybody knows Dave was in the NHL from 1989 to 2018, amassing 1,546 games and 83 playoff games. And like we said, is now the ESPN rules analyst. Um, how did it come about getting in with ESPN? Uh, was it a phone call? Uh, was it something you pursued or how'd that work out? No, it was a complete surprise. Um, I was planning on going back, you know, after I retired, I did some supervisor with NHL. COVID put a little pause. We're, we're losing your audio there, Dave. You having trouble with the audio? Is that better? It might work better there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so I apologize. So, you know, COVID put a pause on my supervising, and then they called me back last summer and asked me if I wanted to come back, supervise uh, in the development program. And about two weeks later, my uh, former boss, Stephen Walkham, said, um, you might be getting a call from ESPN. And sure enough, uh, got a call, and we talked for a while, a few more calls, follow-ups, some Zooms, and... I became the rules guy. It all happened pretty fast. Well, that happening pretty quickly, obviously. Um, were you prepared for what they threw at you, I guess? Because obviously there's a lot that goes into it. Breaking things down, uh, especially on a live broadcast, uh, was it learning on your feet? Was it, hey, you know, I'm going to trip up a couple times, guys, but I'm going to get this. Don't worry about it. Well, I think I'm still learning. But, yes, <laughs> it was a very a very steep learning curve. Um when I was saying I had about a month to think about it. I mean, I accepted the job and then I had a month before we actually started. And I thought about all the times I sat on my couch going, God, the guys are getting it wrong on TV and I could do that. I could, I could come in and explain it. Not realizing you only had 10 or 15 seconds and you've got to be really concise. And I found at the beginning, I was leaving more questions than I was giving answers. And I realized I had to be more concise I had to um, not be, you know, had to drop the um, small talk, basically, and just get right to the point. Just like I was, I do most of my um, shows from remote. I'm, I'm at home in my office, but I have to make it sound like I'm, like I'm there and I'm just part of the broadcast. And I just come in. And as the time went on, I got, I got the hang of coming in a little, a little more seamlessly, but uh you know, it's always room for improvement. No, definitely. Well, you went through your career, obviously, and you got to hit some milestones. And you got to do your 1,000th game in Montreal. How special was that? And how special was the on-ice vibe? That was, I mean, other than 
I grew up going to the Montreal Forum, which no longer, you know, was their building. But other than, you know, it would have been great had they still been playing in the Forum. But uh, the Bell Center was the second best uh, thing that could have happened. I was able to have my, you know, my entire family there. Uh, the Montreal Canadiens know how to do a celebration. So they had the red carpet out, a big T. Um, my wife, my children, my parents, everybody got to come on the ice, center ice. Uh, both both teams presented me with, uh, you know, a signed hockey stick, flowers for my wife, flowers for my daughter, my mother. And, you know, for probably the first time ever in my career, I had the Bell Center applauding me, which was. <laughs> <laughs> That's a difficult one, especially as a referee at times. Yeah, it was kind of cool. But uh, I think the coolest thing was for me to see my parents and my kids looking around at the you know sold out bell center from ice level which is a view they never get to experience and that was just that was just a night i'll always remember obviously that's that's quite the moment now i want to talk a little bit about your last game which was in la uh, last regular season game were there a ton of well wishes throughout the night or uh, how, how did that night uh, treat you well my you know i i intentionally because that that final year um, I was fortunate enough to do my 1500th game in 2018 as well. That was uh, middle of January. I had a, I had a massive uh, party weekend for that. I had family and friends from all over the country come in. Um, the game was on a Monday afternoon, Martin Luther King Day. Uh, nice. So I had, I had a big party on, I think, Friday night. I had uh, 50 people from out of town. And, um, you know, then I went out for dinner the night before the game with just the guys I was working with and my family. So I kind of got the big celebration out of the way. So come my final game, I knew I'd be, you know, it'd be a little, it'd be a feel a little melancholy. And I really only had my family and two friends at the game and the guys I worked with. So my phone blew up before and after, a lot of well wishes. But really, as far as it wasn't a big celebration, it was uh, 10 people in my hotel room after the game just, staying up late and reminiscing. It was, uh, it was a lot different than my big celebration for the 1500th. Right. Uh, now, obviously it seems like your career probably went like a blink of an eye. Um, what were some of your favorite moments as uh, a ref in the NHL? It's funny. Cause when you say that now I look back on it and it did go like a blink of an eye. I mean, I started as a trainee in 86 and I left in 2018. So I was there 32 years. Um, it was, it was a long career. There are many nights I was there on the ice being yelled at and having stuff thrown at me. I was going, this, is, this career has lasted 40,000 years. But um, I guess memorable things, in, uh, obviously my first, first NHL training camp, that was something you just never thought would happen. And I got to go there and I was on the ice with, with you know, legends, guys that I watched on TV. Um, your first NHL game, obviously, I was in Quebec City. I lined up. Uh, Guy Lafleur was playing for the Nordiques, and I'd idolized him wow. as a Montreal Canadian when I was growing up. So he was he was on the starting lineup. He was on the ice. Um, your first NHL playoff game, obviously. I got to do uh, several game sevens, which are always big deals. Yeah. Um, I went to the Sochi Olympics. Nice. I, um, two All-Star games, which All-Star games – don't require a whole lot of officiating, but <laughs> once again, you get to bring your family. 
and yeah. have your kids be able to experience it and get down with the passes on and meet the players. Basically, you have the run of the rink of the lower uh, bowl. Um, it's it's for your family, which is a really neat feeling. And then uh, I got to do the outdoor game at Coors Field here in Denver, where I live now, Ooh, nice. which was also uh, an awesome experience. I mean, there's just there's 20 or 30 milestones that you just well you'll always remember, always take with you. Those are amazing memories. I mean, that a career that long, there'd be so many to talk about. I want to ask, you know, for you, do you feel it helps? Like doing what you're doing now with ESPN, once fans take the actual emotion out of it, you know, when they're cheering against whatever's happened, usually if you're upset about a ref's calls because your team isn't done wrong, do you feel what you do helps? Um, settle people down, give them a little bit more clarity, uh, helps them along the road of understanding, hey, you just weren't screwed over. This is the way the rule is interpreted. And when you get to break it down that way, do you feel it gives people a little bit more uh, clarity on the day? Well, I think it does, except the Leafs fans don't get to watch me. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, there's a little bit down the down the line here. We'll talk some Leafs stuff. So okay. You might be able to quell some of Leafs Nation tonight. So There you go. No, I mean, I think that, especially in the U.S., ESPN really wants to grow the game. And I think the way you grow the game is by having a knowledgeable fan base. Fans aren't going to watch a sport they don't understand. That's true. So everything I can do to help the fan understand and also make the league look good. I mean, too many times the referees get bashed. And referees make mistakes. They all make mistakes. I made – God, I mean, I can – I could stand up – stand here all night telling you mistakes I made in in my career. But – uh, a lot of times they make the right call and it's a very unpopular call and they get maligned for it. And it really turns out to be the right call. And I think anytime I can add to that and just explain that, listen, you might not be happy, but that was the right call. And I think that'll go a long way to growing the fan base. No, it definitely would for sure. Um, now where you're on the ice, let's talk about the players. Um, is it easier to refer to them by name, uh, first name, last name, um, you know, just to establish a rapport, obviously, while you're on the ice, uh, how does that go for you? What is your go-to way to deal with a player? I always tried to learn players' first names. Even if they were sort of new in the league, I'd always scour the uh, lineup card before the game. Always try and remember their names. Sometimes I'd get it wrong. You know, you associate a last name with a guy you went to school with or something. You call <laughs> the wrong name. You look at you go, oh, sorry, I went to school with a guy named, you know, Joe Smith, and you're – somebody else but um i think i don't like using nicknames i find nicknames i haven't earned the right to call guys by their nicknames i'm not in the locker room with them i'm not i'm not their teammate and i'm also not their friend i like to have a good relationship with them but you know it's i have to call a penalty on these guys and i have to be in charge of the game so you really don't want to ever get too close especially when you're on the ice but i think knowing people's names coaches especially i mean how does a guy respond better? You say, Hey coach, or you say, Hey Steve, you know, you, you talk, you get your immediate attention. And I think it earns you some respect that you've taken the time to learn their name. Yep. And I know that works the other way too. When a player comes to me and goes, Hey stripes or Hey ref versus coming over and going, Hey Dave, can I ask you a question? Like I'm much more approachable when they, when they call me by my name. Yeah, I can see that. I can definitely Just a, just a sign of respect. Now, obviously, things can get heated with players and refs. Uh, is there ever a time where 
you guys, you know, you, it, it's about the face off or whatever. And you guys actually apologize or do you ju- guys just normally sweep it under the rug and you're like, it's, it's the game. Well, I think to be a good referee, you need to have a really short memory. Yep. And I, I think I sometimes surprised people like you, you get into it and you'd be going at it and you, you try and be respectful. You try and treat disrespect with respect, but you know, let's face it. It's not, it's easier said than done. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. And there's times I went at it with players and they'd come out in the next period and I'd make a point of skating around with them and going, Hey, are we good? And they'd look at me kind of, kind of weird. I go, I'm good. Like I've forgotten about it. I'm, I'm moving on. Are you good with me? And they'd be, yeah, I'm good. And we'd, and we'd move on. And I think that's the best way to address it is that if you don't address it, then they, they're going to assume the worst. They're going to assume you're holding a grudge. Right. So I always like to try and, you know, go right at them and sort of break the ice and go, Hey, are, are we good? Like, let's move on here. And so I, is that why like when a broadcast comes back from after a period or something like that, and sometimes you'll see a ref maybe with a player skating around or even just by the bench, just talking. Is that absolutely. kind of that situation there? Absolutely. And it's, and it's twofold. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've told a player who's just given it to me. I'm saying, listen, <laughs> save your breath. Go watch the video between periods and tell me if I was wrong. Right. And sometimes they come out and say, I watched it and you were wrong. And I said, well, then I owe you an apology. And a lot of times they come out and they'd say, hey, I owe you an apology. You were right. And I just think it goes a long, it goes a long way to establishing rapport there. Uh, you know, giving them the time to cool down. And then also if, you know, admitting you're wrong. And sometimes, right. you know, sometimes you would just placate them because you haven't seen it yourself yet. Yep. And they're going to tell you you're wrong because they want to get the next call, right? Yeah. But for the most part, if you just say, hey, listen, from where I was standing, you say I'm wrong. From where I was standing, it was the right call. If you're telling me I'm wrong, well, I'll look at it myself after the game and I'll see you, I'll see you down the road. Right. And I usually so, made a habit of following up on that. If, I, if the guy was really hot about something, yep. it might be a month later. And I, I would remember, <laughs> I, I, I'd go see him. I'd go, hey, listen, I watched that video and I disagree with you. Or I watched that video and you know what? You were right. I blew that call. Right. Because I, now, think, that, I think that gives you some credibility. No, it does. It lends, it lends it to on the ice, right? Like you said, establishing that rapport and respect is huge. And that can go a long way to diffusing a situation as well. Absolutely. You got to be smart with your words, I guess. <laughs> um, I want to ask, in terms of runway for a guy, when you're on the ice and there's a chirping going back and forth, we've seen refs throw guys in the box. We've seen Marshan in the playoffs get tossed in the box, you know, unsportsmanlike for just chirping yep. and chirping and chirping. What? What was the runway for you? What was the line crosser where you're like, nope, this is done. You're done. How far would a guy have to go? A guy could go pretty far with me if he didn't get disrespectful. So there's certain words, and I mean, I'm not going to repeat them here. There's certain words you just don't call me. Yeah. And uh, those are pretty universal. Those are words you don't call someone in a bar. You don't call someone on the street or there's going to be trouble. Yep. If a guy is just pleading his case and he's disagreeing with you, I usually tended to say to the guy, listen, I heard you the first three times. You want to keep going? And they'd be, no, I got it. And if they kept going, well, then maybe you did something. But, I mean, I really don't think you need to overreact and put guys in the box. As long as as long as they feel they're being heard. If you can tell a player, if you let a player know, listen, I've heard what you're saying to me, and I understand 
but enough's enough. So let's agree to disagree and move on, okay? I think where you get a lot of issues is if the referee is unapproachable, is if he just doesn't even want to listen to you. And you'll see a lot of times a guy wants to talk when the period's over. And we pretty much make a hard and fast rule there. We don't, we're not going to talk to you when the period's over because you're hot. Go take 18 minutes, come back, and I'll talk to you all you want. And that's why a lot of times you'll see them yelling as they go off the ice, but then they come back and they're pretty cordial because they have calmed down. And they probably had a chance to watch the replay. No, it makes sense. Makes sense. Um, now, is there ever somebody that, you know, you might have called more than others? Not necessarily just because they got a little bit more heated, but, you know, there's there's some guys out there like Brad Marchand to name somebody that, you know, he, he might cross the line a little bit too far a couple times. And, you know. <laughs> uh, you know what? I think it's all uh, is it Brad's, media a competitor. Brad's a competitor. Brad plays hard. Yeah. And honestly, I, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Brad Marshall. I think if I was a coach, I'd want him on my team. Absolutely. And uh, I think with someone like Brad, I mean, I, when he'd start acting up, I, I would say to him, i go, listen, Brad, do me a favor. Go cross trouble tomorrow night. <laughs> let's Not ruin, ruin, ruin some other referees game but do me a favor don't ruin my game tonight okay man and you, you know if nothing else you get a smile from him yes yeah and it, it would take away his focus enough for that situation and that's what i tried to do with a lot of players sometimes it works sometimes it didn't you know when they're really hot there's no talking them off the ledge if they're yeah. semi-hot then i think a well you know a well-placed uh, sarcastic comment Makes everybody laugh and cools things down. Yeah. No, no, that, that, I can see that, especially with Brad too, because I mean <laughs> he's up to antics and doing things like that. So he was that's right in his wheelhouse. I gotta wonder though, um, do guys get calls based on reputation throughout the league? Um, if you look at Kadri, uh, was talked about in the media, talked about all across the everything that basically you know he was getting calls because of his reputation and what he's done. Uh, I can think of other guys too throughout watching hockey. That you know, it would be said, "Oh, that's a reputation call right there." <laughs> Do you believe in those, or is that well, really media-driven, or does that happen? Well, I mean, I think there's. I mean, you, you know, you talk about stereotypes, right? Yep. Yeah. Well, stereotypes happen for a reason because there's a little bit of truth that leads to a stereotype. There's a little bit of truth that leads to a reputation, right? Yep. So, a guy that gets a reputation tends to play on the edge. Reciprocates what he gets, yeah. He would be the first guy to admit that he plays on the edge, no matter which guy you're talking about. Yep. So, yeah, I think those guys get maybe noticed a little more when they're on the ice. But I know as a referee, and I only speak for myself and probably the close, my closest friends around staff, is that the last thing you want to do is go looking for a penalty. True enough. Yeah, because yeah. What happens when you go looking for a penalty is there's a good chance you're going to overreact to something that really isn't a penalty. And when you do that, you end up frustrating the team and possibly the game goes sideways on you. You want to have your antenna up. You want to be aware and you want to go, hey, so-and-so is on the ice. Maybe he's been playing on edge all game. Maybe you've had him in a couple of games in a row. He's been playing on edge. So your antenna's up and you might watch him closer. But you want to let the penalties come to you. You don't want to go looking for them. And well, I'm gonna ask that. When, when you look at a game and you look at, um, you know, just per se, Toronto, Boston coming into town, yeah. uh, we know the rivalry throughout the playoffs, all those different things that happen. Do you look at that game and say, okay, what are we looking for here? What guys are we looking for? 
these are guys that might be heated with each other. You think of DeBrus Kadri just back in the day. Do you yeah. look for those things that might be firecracker things and just look to maybe diffuse those situations with a penalty? Or do you try to just let them play the game, but obviously not let them cross the line? I think what you just said, James, at last, you let them play the game of that crossing the line. I know I went on with ESPN before the rematch when Washington played the Rangers in New York, uh, two thirds of the way through the season. And um, it was when Tom Wilson was coming back in, in the town. Yes. And the Rangers loaded up in Reeves during the summer. And it was the first time they were going to play in New York. And there was all this, you know, emotion around the game. And it was, it was a circus, really. And they brought me on and asked me, like, what are the referees doing in this situation? Do they do they go out like in slap shot? Remember during the anthem when the <laughs> referee turned around and started threatening the players and all that? And I said the very same thing on TV. I go, you don't want to prejudge this game. I mean, what if both coaches have told their players, hey, knock it off tonight. This game's too important. And then you go out and call a bunch of cheap penalties and all of a sudden two or three power play goals get popped in. Then the team goes, well, we got nothing to lose now, right? And that's when the game, you know, that's when the game goes sideways on you. Right. So no, it go pretty quickly for sure. Yeah. So that's the kind of game where the referees would get together in the locker room before the game. They would talk about the personnel, the personnel on both teams, just based on their own experience. Like, you know, what, what are the tendencies of these guys? Uh, you know, what's your relationship with these guys? Uh, and you'd go through all that. You come out on the ice and you just treat it like any other game. And then, the first time, the first opportunity you have a scrum, that's when you got to be really vocal and you got to lay down the law. And it's like, it's like dealing with your children. If you threaten them and count to 10 <laughs> and you don't follow through. Yeah. Well, the kid owns you, right? Oh, yeah. for sure. So if they start going over the edge, you, you, you lay the law down, you give them a warning. So I'm not taking it tonight, guys. It's just not going to happen. And the next time it happens, there's going to be penalties. And then you got to follow through with it. And you probably want to go to the benches. In a game like that, you want to go to the benches after the first warning so that there's no misunderstanding. You go right to the coach. You say, listen, I've just warned them, and there's going to be penalties next time. And if I can, I'm going to try and get one guy. I'm not going to call doubles. I'm going to try and get the first shot. And if the guy who gives the first shot gets punched back, well, that might be a freebie because I want to send a message here. Right. Yep. No, I get that. And then you follow through with it. To be honest. Um, now – Speaking of making sure that you keep your eyes out for every penalty, uh, can you give Leafs fans a little bit of help with that, the non-high stick call in 93 and, and try and make us feel a little bit better about it? <laughs> well, in 93, the game was a lot different. You had one referee in versus two. And I tell you what, there were nights um, I was never uh, – fortunate or lucky enough um i did i think seven years uh, one referee uh but i never got a playoff assignment i mean that was tough to crack if you cracked a playoff assignment one with one referee you were knocking somebody out basically um but i can tell you just from doing regular season games one referee that it was uh, it was it was controlled mayhem right. and i can only imagine actually i can't imagine how much ramped? How much more ramped up that would be come playoffs? Yeah, I can see it. Especially a game six or seven in the third round of the playoffs. There's stuff going on everywhere. So, right. you know, that call got missed. It, it just got missed. 
there was no uh, there was no conspiracy. There was no. I know Leafs fans love to think there was. Um, I know Kerry Fraser. He's talked about it many a times, uh, yeah. both on the you know the banquet circuit on his Twitter account. No one feels worse than him, other than maybe Leaf fans, but um, no one feels worse than him. It's just a missed call, and those things happen. And you know, in today's game, possibly you know he was bleeding. You could have called a penalty, a double minor, and you would have gotten a replay and it would have been reviewed. Um, but, you know, the game evolves and now we get two referees on the ice. So hopefully it would have been seen. Well, you know, one call that um, kind of hurt the Leafs this past postseason was that phantom high stick. I don't know if you know the one I'm talking about. I do. That led them to uh, go down by one. And of course, Kerfoot took the other penalty down the other end of the ice yeah. to put them down by two. Um in a situation like that, yeah, um, is there any way other than after the game to get that right, or is that just something? Hey, it just happens. That's the speed of the game, and that's the call that was made. Well, you know what? It's it's really tough, and I'm not going to be an apologist here because I agree. And, and it, let's we can't call it a phantom high stick because the stick was high. Oh yeah, no, nope. it and just didn't clip them. That's all. It wasn't a penalty, but. <clears throat> Without so, if you go back to you know, you talk about the missed high stick on Doug Gilmore. About what year was that? 93? 93, yeah, yeah. If you went back to 93 without the video replay, without the 15 cameras, and without high definition television, that's a penalty all night long, and no one says boo, yeah, because that's how fast the game is. In, in fact, in real time, I think. People would be lying if they didn't say that that was a penalty in real time. In fact, if you're sitting in the crowd looking at that play, that stick comes underneath his chin. The guy throws his head back, which is a natural reaction when the stick is near you. Yep. And you know what? That's what the referee saw. No, nope, we can no. break it. We can break it down on video. And yeah, unfortunately, it shouldn't have been a penalty, but. What are you going to do? Once again, it's not a conspiracy. It, it just evens up either way. I got to grab my tinfoil hat. Hold on, boys. Um, yeah. Well, I asked this because there was um, a call that was reversed, similar to this. Uh, it was the Roman Polak call in Toronto when he apparently high-sticked, I believe it was a Dallas player. Correct. Um, the refs come together. The linesmen come together. Yeah. And you can see them kind of lean back and peek at the, uh, the Jumbotron. <laughs> and they can they talk, they converge, and they, they have their conversation. And then Polak comes out of the box because that, it was deemed it was the Dallas's player's stick that hit himself in the face, not yeah. Polak's. Yeah. So I'm wondering that, how does that happen in that situation, but can't be done in others. I just want to know a little clarity on that. How do how do the referees talk about some things, but not all things? And I know it's about game flow too. Well, sure. Well, I'm, I'm going to plead complete ignorance that they would ever use the Jumbotron. <laughs> but having said that, in the Pollock case, it was at the it was at the blue line, right? Just inside the blue line? Just inside the blue line, yep. You had all four officials that had an angle on that play. The yeah. one you're talking about in the playoffs was behind the net. Yeah, in the corner. Yeah, and I believe yeah, his back was turned. He was facing the glass. The guy got high-sticked, right? Yeah, he was on the, this shoulder here towards the glass. Yeah. There was only one guy who saw that. He, nobody can help him on that. 
no one could help him. On the Pollock one, you had four guys, and I, I I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you because I, I talked to the guys after that game. Yep. And at least two of them were almost adamant, not 100, but they were very adamant that I don't think Pollock high staked him. So they went into the conversation there, and they came up with the right answer to forward him. I mean, by power of deduction, um, common sense, two plus two yep. equals four. They got the call. <laughs> they got the call right. I don't know how they got it right, but they got it right. Does that happen very often? I mean, obviously, Lee fans we're hypersensitive of what happens to our team, but do things like that get reversed sometimes, and we just don't get to see it on the replays? at the end of the night throughout the highlight packages? You know, it's funny because I've, I've done several Edmonton Oilers uh, podcasts and radio shows, and they kind of asked the question, like, why why do we always get, you know, the calls go against us? And, and I say to them, like, honestly, with ESPN, I think I might have watched, and actually I was actually working. I was working, I probably worked 150 games this, this year. So I sat made notes and watched games and I can promise you it's across the board. <laughs> calls get made, calls get missed. I I honestly would not say that it happens to one team more than another. But what happens with fans is A, they're emotionally invested, and B, the bulk of the games they watch involve their team. Yeah. So you always I mean, feel like you're getting if you talk here. if you talk to a Montreal fans, they're gonna say Brandon Gallagher can't score a goal. Every time he puts the puck in the net, it gets disallowed. Why does his goals always get disallowed? I'm like, do you know how many times I come on and talk about goals being disallowed? I I do it four times a night, all over North America. Yeah, no, I watched uh, earlier today. I watched the one you broke down with the uh, the Rangers and the playoffs there, and why it shouldn't have been a goal. And that's something we are going to ask here in just a little while as well uh, to give us some clarity on that too. But no, that makes sense. It absolutely makes sense that there's more more eyes on that one play with Polak than there was behind the net there, obviously. Um, but those things are things, again, like you said, fans don't see, fans don't think about. Um, you're hypersensitive that you're, hey, it was a missed call on our guy. You know, why didn't this happen? Why does this happen? Right. So to get the, that little bit of clarity can the best really help thing, some people. The best thing they brought in, in my opinion, is that when a player gets cut with a high stick, mm. Uh, we can, they can automatically review that and rescind it. So if, uh, you know, the player gets cut, they call four minutes, they can go to that. And if it turns out it was the puck or if his own team's thick, they can rescind that to zero. Well, that's a good, that's a question I want to ask too. We'll, we'll jump ahead just a little bit here. Sorry. Yep. Don't want to ask this one. So no, I know when I a player that. is high sticked. You know, how much time do they have to produce blood? Because some people might be able to get in that gum line and just give a little <laughs> push and have a little trickle come down. Well, you know what? I can only speak for myself, but I would go to them immediately and I say, show me your face. And if there's no if there's no blood, I'm not calling a penalty. And if they produce blood later in their mouth, I'm not calling it. It's, yes. It's a matter of, you know, you could have bit your tongue, you could have anything. I want to see, I want to see an injury. And but conversely, it doesn't have to be blood. If I go look at the guy's face and he's got a massive abrasion across his chin or his cheekbone, and I'm looking at that, and just because it doesn't bleed, the rule is injury, it's not blood. So a high high stick that causes injury. So if I go and he's missing teeth, Mm -hmm. but there's no blood, or he has a massive abrasion across his cheekbone, a big welt. You know, Fred Flintstone type uh, 
Got a hematoma uh, on his face. Hematoma coming out. I'm still calling a, uh, a four-minute high stick for, for injury. Okay. And are you in favor of them using more replays towards penalties to get certain things right? I wouldn't say police the entire game. That way, obviously, a game would take 14 hours. But for certain things, would you be more in favor or less in favor? You know what? I'm not going to say no because the goal is to always get things right. And the people making these decisions, that's way above my pay grade. Um if they decide that they could use replay in certain instances, whether it be maybe a coach gets, you know, one challenge per game or, or the referee gets a, gets a, you know, an ability for one challenge per game. They're all things that can be discussed and they make the game better Then I'm all for it, but you don't want to take the human element out of it either. No, for right. sure. Because let's face it. 99% of calls made are still judgment calls. Yep. Even you could show people a video replay of something, like goal interference, for example. We have replay on every goal interference. It's still judgment. 50 yeah. people out of 100 will say a goal, and the other 50 will say no goal. Right. Now, uh, to talk about something a little bit new, the coaches' challenge is, is, has always kind of taken a little bit of time. Uh, what was your strategy on getting them to kind of move it along? My strategy was, if it's a regular season game, yeah, I'm going to give you about 30 seconds, and I'm going to go over and bully you and tell you I'm <laughs> drop. When I get back to center ice, I'm dropping the puck. Yeah. In a playoff game, as long as I don't think you're trying to screw me around, if you're legitimately trying to get angles, it's too big and too important to drop that puck when the call is wrong. Right. So I'm going to work. I'm going to work with you. And as long as I see you're making an effort to get it right, I'm probably going to give you extra time. Interesting. That makes sense for the playoffs. So, I mean, in regular season game, 30 seconds, I mean, they should – they have a, a plethora of people watching cameras. Exactly. To be able to get it right away. I mean, they're the exactly. reason why they radio down right away. Um, was there ever an instance for you? If you, you can't get you? It right 30 seconds, then too bad. Yeah. Because We're we done. had, we, we had a millisecond to get it right. You guys got 30 seconds. Let's go. Let's, go. let's get a move on here. Yeah, yeah. they should have a, an instance right there. Um, I want to ask this question. So help us here. Help us solve a problem that rages across social media. How do we interpret goaltender interference? Because obviously this is every single year I watch people freak out about it. I kind of understand the whole gist of it, especially after watching today and listening to what you said. But explain it for people. What is the interpretation on goaltender interference that most fans are missing? Well, the short answer would be everybody watch ESPN and listen to me. <laughs> we'll put the clip, though. Don't worry. And we would uh, we would all understand the rule. Uh, to try and break it down, the first thing you look at is how did the player get there? Actually, I should back it up. Where was the goalie when the interference occurred? Was he in his crease or was he outside his crease? And what people don't understand sometimes is the crease is three-dimensional. It goes all the way up to the crossbar. Mm -hmm. yep. so just because his feet are in the crease, his body could still be outside the crease. Yeah. Okay. It's a plane. So picture, picture a, you know, a laser going all the way around, and he's breaking the plane of the crease with his head, with his shoulders, with his upper body. If that is breaking the plane, he is not considered to be in the crease if that's the part that gets hit. 
Okay, that makes sense. Second, how did the player get into the crease? Did he go there on his own or was he pushed into the crease? And if he went there on his own, did he try and get out on his own or did the defender keep him in the crease? Was the contact deliberate? Was the contact incidental? If the contact happens in the crease, whether it's deliberate or incidental, it's probably going to be disallowed if he got there on his own. If the contact is outside the crease and it's deliberate, it'll probably be no goal. If it's incidental outside the crease, it'll probably be a good goal. Okay, yep. So we're asking players to do everything they can to stay out of that blue paint. So when a player has his back to the goaltender, watching the puck because it's a slap shot coming from the point, he's watching that puck, he's backing up, and he bumps the goaltender who's a good foot outside his crease. That's not the player's fault. That's the goaltender's fault. And that goal is probably going to be allowed. That makes sense. That makes sense. So there's a goal then. Would that be – I want to give an example here. So if a player is backing up per se and he bumps the goalie and knocks him over, Yep. Say the goalie just loses his balance, but he's still that one foot out of the crease. And if the referee deems, if the contact was on the part of the body that was out of the crease, and the referee deems it was completely unintentional, like the spot was empty a minute ago when he looked over his shoulder, he's backing up trying to deflect the puck, and all of a sudden now the goaltender's there, that's that's a hockey goal. Play on. So is there a goaltender, and we've seen these, uh, there's a few of them that uh, like to do the old flopperoo. Uh, is there a goaltender that you uh, you kind of knew that if he got any kind of contact, he was going down? Oh, there was a handful of them, but I won't tell you who they were. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you, you answered the question without answering the question. So yeah. we we know that they because every goaltender will tell you, no, I would never do that. I would never, I would never jeopardize my integrity by flopping. So, but we, we've seen it a oh, few yeah. times. I, I I've seen goaltenders get pretty much steamrolled by their defensemen and not go down. And then two minutes later, you know, an, offend, an offensive player moves within an inch of him, and it's like he was just – there was a sniper attack. <laughs> Exploded. Just blown all over the ice. Um, I'll ask this question here. Um, goalies, obviously, they get heated sometimes when they are interfered with. And one that comes to mind right away was Curtis Joseph against the Ottawa Senators, blown out of the crease, obviously blows a tire, takes the ref down. Um, in that kind of situation, how would you have handled that – and how do you handle goalies when they are just boiling and feel that they have been just wrong to the sun? Well, that was the the, the late Mick Magoo, who yep. was the referee in that game. And I got to be honest with you, I don't remember the call. I don't remember. I mean, in the sense that I don't remember if it was a missed penalty or just tough luck. But I do remember him coming at Mick, losing his edge, and Mick going over top of him. And I, you know, I was, uh, I knew Mick well and everybody who knew him, he would talk about that situation. And Mick knew that Curtis Joseph had no malicious intent when he did that. He was just really upset and, you know, he could have tossed him out of the game, but he didn't. He, he gave him a 10 minute misconduct, which was the right call because everybody knew that it was an accident. Yeah. But you had to, you had to acknowledge it. You couldn't just let him get out of there with nothing. So. I think a 10-minute misconduct was the right call there. I think you, not just with goaltenders, I think with anybody, when they snap, you want to give them as much leash as possible so that if you have to throw them out, they've basically thrown themselves out of the game. 
True enough. Yeah, I can see that. You don't want to be in their face. You don't want to go at them. You want to get away from them. I don't mean run scared. I just mean if you have the ability to, you know, back away and go stand in the referee's crease and they want to come at you, then they're hanging themselves. Yeah, you're giving them all the leash. They but you don't want to be accused of escalating the situation or being confrontational. Right. Now, I have a bit of a personal question. Uh, now, obviously, it might be different uh, from when you started uh, than it is now. But uh, I've kind of uh, looked around at trying to be a referee. Now, how did you become a referee? And is it different than it is now? Or uh, how, how do people go about that step? It's, it's slightly different. I started refereeing uh, when I was 14 years old. I was a hockey player. And I, wanted, I wanted to be a professional hockey player. Mm-hmm. Around the age of 16, 17, I had the realization I didn't have a hope in heck of ever making the NHL. Um, not a terrible hockey player, but certainly not a great hockey player. And, but I refereed instead of having I – had, I had a paper route where I had to deliver the papers early in the morning, and I hated it. I'm not a morning person. So a buddy of mine said, why don't you referee hockey? And so if you look back in the day, if you played really good hockey, I mean, I'm, I'm in my late 50s right now. We had one ice rink in our town. And if you played really good hockey, you might have had two games a week, two practices a week, which still left you three days where you were doing nothing. And I could go referee. And that's a lot of my contemporaries. The guys I came into the NHL with were the same way. Some of those guys played major junior. Some of them played D1 college hockey. But they all refereed as kids because they had the ability to um, do both at the same time. So what you got were guys that didn't make pro hockey, but they were still athletic and they knew the game. They played a semi-high level of hockey. Yep. What happens today is the elite hockey players, they're on the ice seven days a week. There's no opportunity for them to referee minor hockey at the same time. Right. So what happens is there's a lot of good referees that come up through the ranks traditionally who are good skaters and good athletes, but not as many of them as there were back in the day. So what the NHL decided to do is have this combine in Buffalo where they would recruit and invite recently retired players, guys that uh, played major junior, guys that played one or two years pro, maybe American League, East Coast League, um, college players who just graduated and said, hey, come for the weekend. We'll show you what refereeing is all about. We'll show you a ton of uh, video, a ton of fun movies, all those all those YouTube videos you see with the referees mic'd up and everything. Yep. And then what they do is they draft hockey teams and they play three days of a mini hockey tournament, nobody checking, just yeah. just fun four-on-four hockey. Everybody gets a couple of like three or four times to referee a hockey game. Nice. Without, without much instruction, they go out there, but these guys know the game of hockey. Yep. And they're athletes and they should all be really good skaters. And every year they'll pluck five to 10 guys out of there. Some guys they might offer a contract to, which is rare, but the guys they pluck out of there, they'll place in other leagues. They'll put them in major junior. They'll put them in the USHL. They'll put them in the East Coast League, the Southern Professional League. Some even go right to the American Hockey League. Um, if you go to the American League, you're probably a linesman. Referees, they start them younger. They put them in the USHL. But I guess you'd call it fast-tracking. But fast-tracking guys that they really have a feeling about that 
have a good head on their shoulders and they do a lot of, you know, vetting. Like they, they look in the player's background and talk to his ex coaches. Like what kind of kid is this? Yep. They have a good feel about him. So I'm not going to say there's not some resentment from guys that started refereeing when they're 14 and they see these guys get fast tracked, yep. but all things being equal, they're not going to overlook a guy that took the traditional route because I know when I was doing development and I was scouting for two years, I went to the junior leagues. I did, uh, you know, uh, the, the Canadian Hockey League. I did the USHL, and I even did, like, the East Coast League. And I saw these guys that really were not guys from the Combine but were on the NHL's radar, and they get a fair shake. So they're just, you know, they're just banging the bushes trying to shake out anything that'll show itself that has talent. Absolutely. So there you go, Dylan. Make sure you get out there and show that talent, buddy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm 24. And what's your hockey background? I just played like minor, like it's basically low. I got into it fairly late though, and uh, yeah. parents couldn't afford it much. But my well, life seems to be very up, revolved around hockey, and uh, I'm looking to you know get back into like the game that I love. Obviously, you're in the London area, which is a mecca for both yes, players, players and officials. I would talk to my local minor hockey uh, branch, sign yep. up, sign up. You go to a referee clinic in the fall, yep. do a year, do a year of kids hockey, just yep. squirts, novice, peewee. And if you like it, then start making yourself known that you want to, you know, go to the next level. And by all means, contact me. If, if you like it and you're any good at it, contact me and I'll, I'll put you in touch with people. Absolutely. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, I want to ask this question. Obviously, getting into refereeing, you kind of have to be uh, non-biased. You can't have a, a favorite team or a favorite <laughs> yep. player. How do you shake that? You talked about growing up, you know, and watching the Montreal Canadiens. How do you shake that feeling um, and not want to call it that way for a team? I obviously know it's a job and you got to do it right, yep. but there's still that fan in you. Everybody's got that fan. Yeah, you for want sure. to see your team do well. Um, sure. Are you held back from games? that you maybe have said, hey, this has been my team growing up? Or do you officiate those games and just try to call it down the middle? So you know what? When I got when I my first NHL training camp, I said, boy, if I ever make it, I'm I'm really worried. Like, <laughs> you know, Montreal Canadiens, you know, I idolized these guys, right? They won the Stanley Cup. When I was a kid, I must have gone to five Stanley Cup parades. Wow. So by the time I got brought on by the NHL, and by the time I did my first – NHL game was probably uh, three, four, it was probably four years. And by the time I first did my first uh, Montreal Canadiens game, which I didn't do until I was full-time NHL. So you, you spend a couple of years where you go up and down between the American League. Yeah. So I'd gone seven years between when I was a fan to when I finally was with the NHL and did a, a Montreal Canadiens game. By the time I did a Montreal Canadiens game, not one of those guys in the ice was the guys I idolized. Every one of them, every single one of them I knew from the Western Hockey League, from the East Coast League, from uh, the American Hockey League, you know, from Kalamazoo, from Sherbrooke, from Westminster, B.C. And they all had a different sweater on when I first ran into them. And they all called me names and yelled at me. And, <laughs> and when I got out in the ice, my my... Fear of being a homer disappeared like that when I realized 
these are the same guys that are on the other team that just wearing a different color sweater. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, okay. Just a bunch of just a bunch of guys who hate me. <laughs> <laughs> that's just that's rocking awesome. the sweater that you used to love. That, that's, no, it's interesting to hear because I always wondered that. Because obviously, growing up, everybody's a hockey fan as they're going through the ranks. So I wanted to know: yeah. Do they steer you away? Do they ask you that question when you're going through? No, process? not at all. They just they just they just can tell by the yeah. people they hire. And they keep you away from your, you know, a, a kid that gets hired today in Montreal in the minor leagues, um, he wouldn't do a game in Montreal and probably see Montreal at all for, you know, three to four years. Same way the kid from Toronto, um, they, they're, they're aware of that. Yeah. And when you get there, I mean, I, I got a funny anecdote. I did a game in Boston one night. It was Boston-Montreal playing. It was right before the playoffs, and they were going to play each other in the first round. It was predetermined. There was only two games left in the season. And Boston sent a message that night. They just gooned the heck out of Montreal. I mean, there must have been 10 fights. Boston threw their weight around. They just they just dominated Montreal. And me and Paul Dvorsky, we just did our job, and Boston got most of the penalties. <laughs> so... I drove to that game. I was still living in Montreal at the time. So I drove home from Boston and listened to sports talk radio. And the Boston radio stations were just crucifying me as a homer. I come from Montreal. I picked on Boston all night. I'm a homer. I got halfway home. I lost the Boston stations, turned on the Montreal stations. And the Montreal stations crucified me for saying to try and prove I wasn't a homer. All I did was screw Montreal all night long. <laughs> what? And you never win. Never and I said win. I must have done my job because no one's. <laughs> That's it right there. That's what Perfect. they say, right? You yeah. do it right, then everybody hates you. Um, I gotta ask: Is there penalties that you like to call during a game? Like, not that you wanted to call them, but one that you're like, man, this is a penalty that's fun to call just because of the way it goes down. And sometimes, who it was going against made it that much better just because of their reaction to it. No, I mean. You know, if I didn't have to call a penalty all night, I mean, that would mean I didn't do my job. But in a perfect world, I mean, that would be great because I'm not there to insert myself into the game unless it needs to be inserted into. Yep. Um, obviously, an obvious penalty shot is always exciting. Yes. Because, you know, guy's got a breakaway, gets tripped from behind. There's so much drama with a penalty shot. That it's, that's just exciting. Fair and enough, and yeah. I, guess, I guess the other one where you might get a certain measure of glee is where you've had a player who's been on you all night and you've warned him, you've been fair with him. You've yeah. talked to his captain, you've talked to his coach. You go, keep him away from me, get him off my back. And he still pushes his lock and you end up having to give an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty and his team gets scored on. There's a little bit of karma there where you just go, listen, man, I didn't want to, I didn't want to call the penalty. I really didn't. I gave you every chance to get out but you wouldn't leave me alone. You did it to yourself, and now your team got scored on. And, you know, your coach is going to be mad at you, not mad at me. All right. That's fair. That's fair, man. If you give people a runaway, man, I mean, they have no recourse to you, especially if you've gone through every channel and they're still grinding you. I can see that one being a little satisfying in your own mind. You would never really like, say it. But. Like, I go back to it's like raising kids. <laughs> You got to be yep. fair and consistent with them. And if you lay the ground rules down and you tell them you're good, if you follow the ground rules and they don't, then it's, it's just, it's karma, man. Right. Well, definitely. 
So in your opinion, for the NHL, is there any rule change-wise that you would do to make things better, a rule that could use some you know, revision, um, anything that comes to mind for you that would help the game from where it is now to go to the next level? We talk about fans wanting to understand it and be in it. So is there something that either you would change or bring in? Uh, there's two rules I'd love to see changed. One is we don't have checking from behind as a minor penalty. So okay. I, believe, I believe in minor hockey, you do. A check from behind is a minor penalty mm-hmm. or, or a major or a 10. We can only call a game, a five in game for checking from behind. Okay. Which is seldom called because we call it boarding or charging or whatever. But you will get plays where a guy will be in center ice and he might be pivoting backwards and the guy will put a shoulder between the guy's shoulder blades, his head snaps and down he goes. As long as he didn't charge him or cross-check him, that's a legal play, and everybody gets mad about it. They go hit him from behind, but it's going to be another penalty. But I think if it's bad enough, the referee will end up calling roughing or, or cross-checking or something. But then when you look at the replay, sometimes you go, well, that's he didn't really cross-check him, but the referee's just doing his job. He's controlling the game, keeping the players safe. But it would be really easy if we could just go, oh, that's two minutes for hitting from behind. And what was yeah. the second one you're thinking? The second one is – we have a major or match penalty for spearing and we have a double minor for spearing if it's an attempted spear. An attempted spear would mean no contact. How many times in a scrum do you see a guy with one hand on his stick spear a guy in the back of the leg? And we call it. We call slashing because it's only worth two minutes. Yep. But So we call it slashing, but I think it would be great if you could go, I'm giving you four minutes for spearing. I know you made contact, and that's why I'm giving you the penalty. But the, the way the rulebook's written, your hands are kind of tied, that it has to be an attempted spear for four minutes. I'd love to see it with contact at the referee's discretion. All right. Now, there's one last question from me, and Dylan, I'll let you have the floor in a moment. Um, yep. We all know about the Connor McDavid, no penalty called last in the, the bubble playoff thing or whatever you want to call that, the Canadian division. Um then all of a sudden it seemed like, you know, John Tortorella got involved and chirping about it, et cetera, et cetera. I'm wondering for you, um, when a player comes out and says something or lots of media and everything comes around, you know, honing in on a guy that maybe doesn't get calls and should get calls, um, you know, even Austin Matthews, you know, or the Maple Leafs or our team or whatever, do you buy into that kind of narrative? And, you know, do you guys go back and look at things and say, you know what, maybe we should have called this or maybe this should have been called? Or is that just purely hyped up by all the fans, social media and et cetera? Because it did go from Connor McDavid not getting any penalties to this postseason, more being called towards him. And it almost looked like they kind of leaned towards what he was saying. And it could be easily shown that way, but it may just be the way they called the game and they just, there were no penalties on them before. Well, I'm going to have a long answer here, but <laughs> a, a, I've never seen a referee's cost a team four games straight. <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, <laughs> no, 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 I agree with you. Trust me. I agree um, with you. Adjustment in the moment. So, you, especially in playoffs, people need to understand in the moment, each series has a supervisor. Okay, yeah. And, 
Referees seldom do two games in the same series unless it goes to a game six or seven. If a game is, and at least the first five games, you'll seldom see the same referees twice. Okay. But the supervisor in that series is there every game. And the reason he's there is because if a bunch of penalties go missed or uncalled, it's his job to make the referees next game aware of it. Go, this guy's being targeted, and the referees last game didn't do a good job of, of recognizing it. When it goes four games in a row, maybe they weren't really the penalties and the team was just shutting them down. Okay. Because I saw that montage of, what was it, 20, 20 so-called missed penalties? Yep. I think maybe there was three or four that you could really, everyone could agree on and go, yeah, those were definitely missed penalties. But for it to be 20, I mean, Winnipeg did a great job, a great job of playing the body and playing the man. And Edmonton didn't have a ton of playoff experience at that point. And I'm not sure that them or their fans realize he's not always going to fight through stuff come playoffs. Uh, When you look at how the game changed from last year to this year, there was a lot of cross-checking that went unpenalized. And we'd allowed that to sneak back into the game. And as a group, referees didn't adjust because referees, for the most part, don't watch TV, read the paper, or follow social media, especially in playoffs. Because if you do, it's just soul crushing. It, uh, you know, the negative, the negativity yeah. would just play with your head. So they largely stay away from that. But the league recognized that, you know, we need to do something about this. And we can't just change it, you know, mid-run. But we're going to do something about it over the summer. Came out in the fall. And I think they did a heck of a job cleaning it up this year. No, I'll agree with you 100%. And it started out like gangbusters, too, in the first first few games first few weeks anyway you know basically allowing players to know that this is a no-no zone you're not doing that and if you do it even just a little bit you're going to the box so no, definitely, i agree with you 100 percent uh dylan do you got another question um i think the only one that really comes to mind is there like a a set group each like year so like two referees and two linesmen that that stick together throughout the entire year or does it always kind of change each game or is it like and also, like, what is it in the playoffs? Like, so a regular season, it's constantly changing. Uh, okay. You might be two games of one guy, but if it is, it's just convenience for this assigner. Uh, right. Always change. And the reason behind that is when you had just one referee, teams were able to um, recognize tendencies. This guy wouldn't call up, this guy would. And if you put two guys together and kept them together all season, right. it would still get a a tendency you know what i mean mm-hmm. versus mixing guys up constantly keeps teams on edge and it keeps uh it keeps the referees in check if one guy's right. not calling enough or one guy's calling too much he works with a multiple amount of guys who you know he can, he can see if his standard is on par with the other guy's standard supervisors do a good job of also debriefing after games and saying you know you guys were a bit loose tonight or conversely, you guys were a bit tight tonight. Like, there were some good body checks that should have been let go. Um, come playoffs, the referees and the linesmen stick together as two-man teams okay, through, yeah. the first, through the first five games. Okay. Game six and seven are usually hand-picked. So if two guys are working great together, they might move on. If your top guy is working maybe with a first-year guy, chances are 
they won't move to game seven. The top guy might, and they'll take a guy from another, another twosome and pair him with them. Right. Gotcha. Great answer. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. Well, I got one last one here, and it's going to revolve around these guys on my hat. Okay. Um, you get to watch a lot of hockey, get to see a lot of different things. We just talked about Edmonton stepping up their grind game a little bit and doing better this year. What do the Maple Leafs, in your humble opinion, need to do to get themselves to a next level and find that grind game? Is there something that you've seen, obviously watching a lot of hockey, probably hearing a lot of pundits talk about the Maple Leafs and what they do and do not do? Um, is there an opinion you might have on that, Dave? Probably score more goals than they let in. Just <laughs> <laughs> the uh, answer there is. You know, I mean, the team I saw on the ice – in round one of this year's playoffs is as good as any team that went to the finals this year. I mean, you know, Tampa Bay went to the finals and it was, it it was one goal separating them. Yeah. I mean, if that had been a best of nine, it might've been Toronto in the finals. Uh, I really, I really think they're that close and they have such great players. I mean, you know, teams would kill for that kind of talent. And, You've got to get there, right? You've got to get there before you can win it. And like, look at the Colorado Avalanche. Yeah, it took them a while. They've for the past four years. Yeah. And disappointment every year until this year. At least they made it to the second round, though. Well, yes, I understand. That. <laughs> Listen, you know what? You got to walk before you can run. So maybe the Maple Leafs took a stride this year and. Maybe they'll hit stride next year, and we'll get to have you on during the playoffs or something and ask you questions of things that don't happen. I think Toronto, as long as they don't blow it up and stay the course, I think they've got a good chance. Of, you know, they've got they've got a pretty big window right now. They've got some young players, and I think I think they're on the right track. I, mean, I from what I've seen, they're a really they're an elite team. Lego Leafs Nation, so you know, put your hand off that panic button. Dave, I want to thank and, you very much. For and, the, and the referees don't pick on them. The referees don't pick on them. <laughs> Listen, well, now we have you to refer to just to uh, to make sure, you know, hey, is this going right or wrong? So Right on. Anytime. Right here. <laughs> well, Dave, I want to thank you very much for jumping on. I want to do a quick hit for the sponsor here. Uh, this is Offside Hockey Talk, proudly brought to you by Boxing Rock Brewing Co.'s Puck Off Lagerdale, the big beer for the big game, or the big podcast with Dave Jackson right here. I appreciate everybody tuning in. This is Offside Hockey Talk, where hockey comes to talk.